Thank you for joining us for the Living Grace in Today's World podcast brought to you by Grace Bible Church in Georgetown, Texas. Our pastor, Dave Roberts, talks further with us today about the gift of grace in the context of today's world. In a world where justice measures the outcome, where is the place for grace? See how God's grace can not only impact and change the world around us, but who we are. Welcome to Living Grace in Today's World. Thanks for joining us today for our second episode of Living Grace in Today's World. We've launched this podcast because we live in such turbulent times and we want to explore what Christianity looks like in a post-Christian, secularized society that sometimes sees the church as the enemy. Perhaps the first thing we need to acknowledge is that the church is the church, Jesus is Jesus, no matter what cultural context we find ourselves in. He is changeless. The good news of grace is the same as it has always been. We don't change or massage or alter our message depending on shifting cultural sins, but simply continue to live the life Christ has brought into us through his redemptive work. So I want to continue with kind of where we started with our first episode laying a foundation for what grace, true biblical grace, looks like. Here's something I say often, and we just really want people to know this. Only Jesus can live the Christian life. I mean, doesn't it make sense that only Jesus can live the Jesus life or the Christ life? We, as believers in Christ, are completely dependent on him. Colossians 3, 4 says, Christ is our life. We needed him yesterday, we need him today, and we will need him tomorrow. Well, John 15, 5 says it clearly. Apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. But Philippians 4, 13 also says this, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Could it be just that simple? I kind of think it is. You see, one of the main assumptions I begin with is that nothing in our world looks like grace. I mean, where in our world are the guilty pardoned without punishment? Where in our world is it allowed for someone to take the punishment for another? Where in our world are gifts given to the completely undeserved? We simply don't have a context for grace. And so we try and fit biblical examples of grace into some kind of behavior-based familiar framework just to kind of get our mind around it, make sense of it a bit. But here's the point. Grace simply does not make sense to the way the world works. We just have to kind of start there. Let me explain. Grace says that someone who is completely guilty and undeserving is forgiven or let off. Behavior that was sinful or evil or just plain wrong is, well, it's just completely forgiven without any atoning payment required by the criminal. Let's make it real. Your child is victimized in some way and maybe it's abusive. Let's let's make it bad. The perpetrator of the crime is caught. Good news, right? So do you want punishment or grace for the criminal? (laughs) 
How would you feel if someone came forward and said they would receive the punishment so that the criminal could go free? You see, most people would object because justice has not been served. It just wouldn't be fair. Well, Scripture is full of examples where people have objected to grace because it's simply not fair. It simply does not make sense in our world. Here's a few examples. First, let's look at what I call the poster boy for grace haters, (laughs) the prophet Jonah. God calls him to go preach to the Ninevites who were... uh, Well, they're just worse than any modern-day terrorists. They're barbarians. And Jonah gets on the boat, and he is heading where? In the opposite direction, not because he's afraid of those Ninevites, but because there is no way those wicked people deserve God's favor. It just wasn't right. And so, you know, the story probably after the storm and his tossing into the sea, three days in the fish, God has convinced him to go to Nineveh. He goes, but he hasn't changed his position that these people are completely undeserving. And I would say, but Jonah, that's the point. If people deserve it, it's not grace. And so uh, Jonah begins his ministry in Nineveh. And in Jonah 3, verse 4, we have his whole sermon. It's only eight words in English, only five words in Hebrew. Here it is in English. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. (laughs) You can almost hear the judgment in his voice. But miraculously, the Ninevites repent. They believe in God. They even make their cattle repent. (laughs) Well, kind of. (laughs) They cover their cattle with sackcloth and ashes, a sign of repentance. So... Jonah's ministry in Nineveh is a roaring success. Oh, and he's so happy about it, isn't he? (laughs) Jonah 4, verses 1 through 3. But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. For I knew, I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God. This is like an indictment of God. I I can't believe you're so gracious and compassionate. And you're slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and one who relents concerning calamity. And then verse 3. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. I want to say, really, Jonah? You would rather die than live in a world where bad people can be redeemed simply by turning to the grace of God? Have you ever been there? God's intervention or lack thereof in certain situations has troubled you and he's supposed to hear and answer my prayers. Why is he blessing those people? It's it's just not fair. We hear in the story straight from Jonah why he had fled God's call in the first place. He's not afraid of failure in Nineveh. He was afraid of success. 
He knew God's going to have mercy on them. They didn't deserve it. Jonah is mad. He had held out hope that God's wrath would overcome God's mercy and destroy those people. But he knew all along it wasn't going to happen that way. He knew God too well. He knew he would be a gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, and abundant in loving kindness. Such terrible things, right? <laughs> he knew what James later would write, mercy triumphs over judgment. There's something in us that uh, screams for justice because that's the right thing. And, and we learn it early in life. Even little kids demand fairness and when they are the one that has been wronged, especially. I mean, I watch my grandkids. I got three grandboys. When one goes to the parent complaining about mistreatment, after a short investigation, the perpetrator has been convicted and sentenced and the victim of the crime is standing off to the side, watching the punishment being carried out with great satisfaction. <laughs> you are getting what you deserve and all is right with the world. We, perhaps a little like Jonah, really want others to pay for their sins, yet have a blind spot for our own. Grace is so out of place in our world, and that's why it's so misunderstood. This American culture in which we live today is spiraling toward the abyss of Marxism. There's this growing movement to eradicate all things biblical from society. When I was growing up, people would lament the loss of prayer in schools or the removal of the Bible from the classroom. And Man, we've moved far from that now. We, we see a redefinition of marriage and uh, more and more, those who live in biblical truth are being painted at best as out of touch. Or sometimes at worst, they're the enemy of the state. And so where, where does grace, the grace of Jesus, fit in the world today that has so much conflict? Can God's people continue to offer grace, live grace in the midst of this spiritual battle? I say absolutely. In fact, I go as far as to say it's our only hope. Another example from the life of Christ. One day he's entering Jericho. A crowd has gathered. People had heard that Jesus, they'd heard about his miracles and uh, they wanted a first-hand look at this new rabbi, and so they had gathered to get a glimpse. One of those in attendance was a man of shorter stature. You know his name, right? Zacchaeus. In order to understand the depth of the story, you have to understand who this little guy was. He was a tax collector. And in the system of the day, the tax collector was like a, a subcontractor for the government. Well, I guess a case could be made for the IRS. Ah, well, I'm not going to go there. <laughs> They had a quota to meet with the government, but whenever they collected over that quota, well, that was theirs to keep. They also had pretty much a blank check to extort people without repercussion. And they were known by the people as the chief swindlers of the day. And Zacchaeus was not only a tax collector, he was the chief tax collector. It's like he was the franchise owner for Jericho and the other swindlers worked for him. So it's not too much of a stretch to say that he was the most hated man in town. And yet Jesus comes by and 
picks out Zacchaeus as the one person in all of Jericho that he wants to go spend the day with. I thought about that, putting it into my context here. I live in this beautiful town called Georgetown, Texas. Great place to live. It's received numerous awards for its historic square at the center of town and It's quite the gathering place with excellent restaurants and shops and every important festival, every important parade, every important civic event, well, it takes place at the square. So imagine an announcement. (laughs) Imagine an announcement coming that Jesus was going to be coming to our town and he was going to be passing through the square on a given day. Okay, I know Jesus is in heaven at the right hand of the throne of God. Just go with me, okay? Can you imagine the announcements in the local churches leading up to this historic day? Everyone was going to be thrilled. Jesus is coming to our town. And when the day arrived, the streets would be lined with people just as they were in Jericho that day. Some are there just because, well, they know it's a historic event and they don't want to miss it. Some are there because they've been recipients of his grace and want to catch just a glimpse of the one who has so much changed their lives. And yes, there is a part of the crowd that opposes him and his teachings, but because of curiosity, they're in attendance also. It's quite a crowd. Then someone yells out, There he is! I see him! I see him! Everyone strains for a view, hoping he's going to stop and pay them some attention as he passes by. And the pastors of the local churches, they're all standing there as kind of a receiving line for the master. But then something peculiar happens. Just as Jesus is a block from the square, his procession takes a sharp right-hand turn. And he travels the two short blocks to a building everyone knows to be the county jail. Well, the crowd scurries along and follows, and he enters and asks to speak with a certain man. And word spreads throughout the crowd. What's he doing? Who is it? Who's he asking to see? What? Why does he want to see him? Word comes that he wants to meet with a man who had been apprehended for breaking into churches and stealing whatever he could find and then setting them on fire. Now, let's just say, as a pastor, I and my church had been one of his victims. It had taken years to recover, but at least this man was getting what he deserved. And now Jesus is sharing a meal with him, showing him grace. After Jesus completes his visit, he leaves town speaking to no one else. Never acknowledges the crowd's cheers. The church people are left with just questions. Why did he not talk with us? Why did he walk past us to meet with the criminal? I'm not sure I like Jesus. But now I know I hate grace. It's so wrong. So Jesus became the house guest of Zacchaeus. The one who could not find a suitable room in which to be born had now found it in the home of the worst of sinners. It did not sit well with the righteous people. The word used to describe how they reacted in English is grumbling or murmuring or complaining. (laughs) Interesting. This word only occurs twice in the New Testament, Luke 15.2 and Luke 19.7, this context. 
Both times it is associated with, quote, righteous people, upset with Jesus hanging out with and showing grace to sinners. Wow. Think about that for a minute. Reminds me of a scene from the life of C.S. Lewis. One day he walks into a British conference on comparative religions where they're debating the uniqueness of the Christian faith. He walks in and he asks the question, what's all the rumpus about? (laughs) You have to love C.S. Lewis. They told him, we're trying to find Christianity's unique contribution among world religions. Without hesitation, Lewis said, well, that's quite easy. It's grace. They debated for a while and eventually all agreed. All other religions... All other worldviews have a system of earning the status of good. In Christianity, it's just given freely because of grace. Thanks for joining us today. May God richly bless you as you live grace in today's world. We hope you have enjoyed today's podcast. If you'd like to learn a little bit more about Grace Bible Church in Georgetown, Texas, please visit us at gbcgt.org. Many blessings from our church family to yours.